I get this asked a lot, and sometimes it's so, um, they corner me so much that I think it's racist. Um, they're like, what kind of cuisine is this? And then I would look directly in the night and I said, it's California, specifically Angelino. And then I'll start going on and on a why and why I call it this. They're like, no, no, what kind of cuisine is it? And I said, California? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Min Fan, the chef and owner of Los Angeles restaurant Porridge and Puffs. Also on the show, we have Chef Daniel Holtzman answering one of Matt's burning food questions. But Matt, what did you and Min talk about? Yeah, Min is what a mind, really. That's all I can say. She's really smart, has like really thoughtful things to say in this interview. But like mostly, let's talk about Porridge and Puffs, a restaurant. It's so good. Yeah, what does that mean? Do you have to choose just Porridge or Puffs? Right. And what are, what are either of those things? Yeah, uh, Porridge is like savory porridge, like juke or uh, congee. And she's just doing braised meats on top of it. She's doing using a lot of California products. And um, so it doesn't really have kind of an ethnicity or, or a home home turf. It's uh, it's just delicious, mushy goodness. Is it very L.A.? It really is. I mean, she's worked in L.A. for years and is known on the scene. And it really feels like she's captured the spirit of L.A. It's located in historic Filipino town. And we talk a lot about the location and kind of how that reflects the food she's cooking. It's a really cool conversation. Here's Matt talking to men. Min Fan, welcome to the Taste Podcast. I love your voice. Oh, it's like half cold, half like gravelly Sam Elliott. I love your voice. Okay, so let's let's talk about porridge because porridge is served in many cultures. Why base- every single culture, not some, all? Why base a restaurant around this fundamental dish, but a dish that maybe hasn't had a restaurant, its own restaurant? Because everyone eats porridge. If if you were if you were born, you've eaten porridge. You just don't know it um, because it's the first thing you eat, period. And if you're really lucky, it's the last thing you eat before you die. Oh, because that's hospital food and you're in the coma? No, because that's, like, that's what you eat when you don't have teeth. Oh, my God. I always went to a morbid place and you went yeah. to like a better place. No, it's what you eat when you're like all gummy and smiley because that's where you start life, all gummy and smiley. And that's yeah. how you die if you're really lucky. It's all gummy and smiley because I don't want fake teeth, but no I want to eat porridge. So I, you know, but if you're a kid, if you've ever had a mixture of liquid and grain or liquid and vegetables, technically potage, you've had porridge. Either it be grit a grits or risotto or jow. That's what I grew up with. Um, kanji, kangi, whatever. However. You juke. juke. Yeah, you've had it. Um, oatmeal, yeah. porridge. Um, but I like the savory kind, you know. Yeah, and that's the cool part about um, this restaurant because I'm, I'm seeing um, porridge as the ultimate uh, canvas for, for just serving delicious flavors and combinations. Are you... That's Thinking that I, way? That's how I got started. Um, I've always loved porridge. When I was a, a young, when I was a kid, I only got it about twice a year. Um, one occasion is one that I love, um, and it's usually the day after Thanksgiving. My family had a traditional Americana Thanksgiving, ham, turkey, 
But then the day after wasn't as traditional. My mom took all the leftovers, mainly the bones, the carcasses, and then she made porridge. So we always had the day after Thanksgiving ham and turkey porridge. And, the, and that's always a happy, wonderful occasion because it's like, you know, it's just like, it's like the comfort food after the comfort food. And then the other occasion we would have it is um, when you're sick. And that's a whole different kind of a porridge. That's like bland and, you know, because you don't want to put a lot of spice or flavors. It's, it's just bland. And I never liked that porridge. But then then I, you know, but I, I kind of remember like, you know, craving porridge and faking being sick. And, <laughs> yeah. And then playing an with excuse. all. Yeah, yeah. And then playing with all the condiments myself because, you know, and my mom would just leave all the condiments out. So there'll be ginger and soy sauce. It'd be my way of being like, ooh, I can, like, you know, make my own favorite bite. So the project came, I call it a project because it started as a project. I, I know people like to use the word pop-up, but for me personally, it's a project. Um, I was, I had a restaurant um, at the edge of the Hollywood Farmer's Market where I was in partnership with an organization that runs the market. Um, and by partnership, they had the space that was great. We made some promises to each other. They provided me the space at reduced rent. Um, I, we shared revenue. And then my promise to them was to use all market farmer's market oh, ingredients. Cool. And when you do that, you get a lot of stuff that you don't know what to do with. Or it's things that are number twos, number threes, things that if you don't use that day, they're gone. Um, so that really inspired me to be like, you know, what's a great canvas for all this stuff. And, you know, I love pickling. I love jamming and all this stuff. And I'm like, what's a great canvas? And people do toast. I love toast, but I'm not, you know, I'm not. I mean, not... Squirrel did that. Wait, yeah. this is real. Squirrel did that. Like, Squirrel's let's amazing. Let's not do toast again. Yeah, but it's like, and I love it, but yeah. I'm just, if I do toast, I'm going to have to learn to become a really great bread baker, yeah. which I did. But so I just knew that. Which I you would. are, by the way. But I'm, I like making, but I'm not. Ooh, that's like someone pounding as usual. It's pounding okay. me. Um, is that, they, what is that? There's a food thing. What? They pounding is like making. Yes, a food. they were pounding. They're pounding um, pork um, loins to make um, pork roulade for dinner. Okay, so that's what they're pounding. That, that is an actual food uh, listener. That's a a food production cost, not a construction. <laughs> yeah, but you're back to the the question. You you are a dope bread baker, though. I like baking bread. I don't think I'm dope. I don't. I think I just like making it because it's you know I just uh, you know that's how. I got started as uh, making bread. People don't really know that, but I love making bread. I got started, um, you know, in pastries and bread. Um, I think that's where you and I connect because yeah. through a good friend of ours. Um, but Dan I, Holzman? Yep, Dan yeah. Holzman. So you worked with him in Aceh? Yeah, I worked with him in Aceh many eons ago. Talk about that time. We're very old. Um, well, it's great. I mean, you know, Dan is one of my dearest, closest culinary friends. We, um, you know, we check in with each other often. And I think it was just a different time. It was Venice, you know, in a... What year? <sighs> a long, ten, long time ago. It's like 10, over 10 years ago. Like maybe, yeah, way over like 10 years. 14 years, years yeah, ago. Yeah, So that's like when LA was really like, like Venice, Santa Monica had a, had a certain yeah. vibe. So we, Downtown was a n- nothing. No. In terms of culinary, no, of course, not something, nothing. Yeah, we worked at this restaurant called Ache. It was a probably one of the very first known farm-to-table restaurants um, in Venice. And I, it, you know, I've always been a farm-to-table chef. Um, that's, so I don't even use those words ever in, in any of our menu because I, I think that's the ethos that I grew up with. That's always what we've done. But at the time, it was like the premier farm-to-table restaurant. Um, he was the chef. I was the baker. Um, you know, some, you know, we did paste, I did pastries, I baked bread. We had a lot of fun. Um, my, 
there's a lot of memories from those days because like you know you always remember like you know these very special times that you spend intimately in a kitchen with some you know with a team and you know people and um Daniel's always been brilliant and crazy and wonderful um but the one thing I really remember the most is I think I hadn't put quinoa like we were like R&Ding and going back and forth I'm like yeah there's this grain I really think you should try and he's like and I showed it to him he's like and we were going back and forth and this is like before anyone used it and I'm like no I think we should really try it like it's from Peru and like, yeah. yeah it's like an ancient and, grain yeah. yeah and then it was quinoa and we put it on our menu and we had to go search for it and he brought it back to me and he goes and he threw like this tiny little bag at me and he goes this was $50 I hope it's worth it <laughs> And then we put it on the menu, and then everyone followed suit. So I feel like that's kind right. of Daniel. My thing is we would do things, and then people – and that's what I learned is you do things and people follow, yeah. but it's always been our thing. It's like people are just going to follow you, and it's going to be okay. And I feel like it's a lot – so I people always like, hey, people put more porridge on the menu. And I'm like, people have always put porridge on the menu. They just don't call it that. They call it risotto. They call it juke. They call it something else. Yeah. And I, we purposely – call our restaurant porridge and puffs with lowercase p's because I don't want to own porridge. I don't want to own puffs. It's the people. It's the word of the yeah, people. It yeah. should stay in the vocabulary. Everyone should make it. We should keep that tradition alive. Mm-hmm. I just make one kind of porridge. And you, so you opened recently, four months ago, in um, the uh, Filipino, traditional, historic Filipino town. Um, I don't know if it's traditional. So what, I, what is the I, proper name? I think it's it's historic. Historical. It's historic Filipino town. It's a de, it's a designation by the city of Los Angeles because there, um, there was a community. There's a lot of activism in the Filipino community early on. There's a lot of radicals. I love this tradition. There's a lot of academics and radicals um, of Filipino descent in this area, and historically has been in this area. And I'm really proud of it. You know, being a woman of color and seeing, you know, other activists that have lived here. I think there's just the spirit of it. And I really like that, but we're actually, um, yeah, I mean, business wise, it's probably like, I should have just say, Oh, we're in Silver Lake or Echo Park. That's really our, closer. Our, yeah. That's that. like yeah. our zip code is, you know, that's, I know our audience comes from there and our zip code's the same, but my spirit is I want just to be, I want us to be a little bit more of, not 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 new, but old. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I'm more of the old spirit. I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. there's some of this. It's like, it, it's it's an interesting. It's a but I really like calling ourselves saying we're in hi-fi historic historic Filipino town. Let's talk about the way that you're presenting porridge at the restaurant because I'm the savory porridge. You know, there's lots of there's sausage and there's tempura and it's such a, a lovely combination of textures. I I get that a lot from your cooking. Tell me, um, what inspires your recipes and what are some of the dishes that you really are happy with right now? It's so cliche, but, um, you know, we're driven by the seasons. We're in California. I, people ask, I get this asked a lot and sometimes it's so, um, they corner me so much that I think it's racist. Um, but they're like, what kind of cuisine is this? And then I would look them directly in the night and said, it's Californian, specifically Angelino. And then I'll start going on and on of why and why I call it this. They're like, no, no. What kind of cuisine is it? And I said, California. And I would, you know, and I, would, I'm, I don't budge. Um, but what they're really trying to find out is what ethnicity I'm from. Oh, I see. And then I said, oh, my parents are Vietnamese. I'm, Viet, you know, I'm ethnically Vietnamese. Um, I love being Vietnamese, but my parents are 
culturally many things as am I and you know they're from the Midwest you know and they I think they're very Midwestern but I'm Californian and I cook Californian food and I don't think I can do this anywhere else in the world um, and use the ingredients I do and be driven by the ethos that I'm driven by if I'm not surrounded by this Angelino community. Which, you know, and it's like there's a connection to the Bay Area, too. So I think California's a better way because there's a lot of those ethos that, um, you know, that also exists in the Bay Area. So I call the cuisine Californian. And the, my approach is always start with ingredients. That's what Californian cuisine is. And that's like the farmer's market ethic where you started this project. Yeah. Um, and just like looking at what's available. It is a cliche, but it, it's not, though, because that's how restaurants work. And it's like the ethic. It's not a cliche. So like just for example, um, this past week, what were you cooking with? What were you finding at the market? Um, what are, w- right now is not. I'm really trying to find the little gems that are int- that are different. Everything's interesting to me. Like I do kale a thousand ways. Ways I don't like. I don't even. We don't even call out kale in the menu because I hate that word because everyone uses it. But I love it personally. Love it. So I use it. I feel like there's so many different varieties and they taste different. There's so many textures, but um, but we sneak it into our menu without telling people. Like um, I love chrysanthemums you guys just missed the chrysanthemum dish um chrysanthemum just went out of season i love chrysanthemums um we were at the tail end of it and the rain kind of killed it um so i love chrysanthemums kabocha of course all the all the winter squashes um on the dinner menu we have a velvet which is based on heirloom squashes um we have a lot of citrus going on um so we sneak yeah. yeah And we have some, we have kind of tail end of apples and pears, Mm -hmm. um, which we pickle. Um, I'm very, very, very excited about kumquat season. Um, I love kumquats, another citrus, but it's a little later in the season. So I have kumquats coming. Um, There's such a little burst of flavor. Yeah, it is. So I'm looking forward to the spring and more grains. I mean, we've been very, like, I do have my luxury items. Like, our herb salad is a super luxury item, which kind of... I love it so much, so I'm kind of fighting with my team to take it off the menu. Um, our herb salad has five herbs in it, at least. Um, it has raw rum, which is Vietnamese hot mint. Um, it has shiso, um, varying varieties depending on the day and where I can find it. It has um, holy basil. Mm-hmm. It has mint. And it has cilantro. I love the idea of the herb salad as a luxury ingredient because you are you're sourcing these all from individual yeah. you know sources. It's and such farms. a luxury. I mean, if you and I, you know, I mean, I and I worked you know where we met. Yeah. I worked in Copenhagen, yeah. and in Copenhagen they would put all of these on a dish in in fine dining, and it'd be like the most expensive dish because it's herbs and you're showcasing it and they would lay it all out and they would do it 10 different ways and I feel like this is my every person's dish that dish but for every person and it's six dollars it's a six dollar dish it's my favorite dish I am doing it at a loss because herbs are so expensive Um, but you really want this to be a statement of the kind of cooking you're doing yeah I really love it but it's a luxury item right now because herbs are super duper expensive and cleaning it takes a long time and there's a lot of waste um, because things get wilted and rain and not because of our team but because of just weather yeah let's talk about i mean copenhagen is interesting because we did meet in copenhagen during one of the mad conferences but uh you didn't work at noma you worked at a castle dragsholm slot that's like my dragsholm slot dragsholm slot dragsholm slot that seems more swedish than the Danish uh, accent. Yeah. So I love, it's a little bit out of the Copenhagen uh, Center, right? It it's was, like, yeah, it's about an hour from Copenhagen. And um, 
at the time, you know, you go to Copenhagen, you know, and I was, I was on, you know, I was looking for a space. I yeah. was looking for a space for years, as we know. I was looking in the middle of looking for a space. Um, an opportunity came up because Mad was doing all these workshops so I led a workshop so I'm like hey you know and I have really good friends in Copenhagen so I wanted to extend my um stay and be like yeah I should do some field work and you know f- you know just kind of see what the one thing that I'm really interested in before opening the, the restaurant um yeah of course chefs and ingredients and kitchens but I know I've been in a lot of them um I've been around for a long time I'm like how different is that going to be I knew it was going to be that super different but the one thing I really wanted to research was um was their system mm-hmm. is how do they do it in a country that is so people-minded right. um, on the surface, you know, and how you're talking so, about like a 32 hour yeah. labor uh, work week and yeah. social services and, lots of, and how do, how do you cook survive? Because in being a cook in, in the States and specifically in LA, like none of us can survive. So I'm like, how do they do it in, in Denmark, how do they do it in Copenhagen? They work really hard too. So it's like, yeah. it's totally, you know, that myth of like 32 hour work week. It's not really true. If you're in the kitchen, um, those people work just as hard as we do. And they, you know, they think about their work and yeah, they, you know, they may get an extra day off, but they work. It's so that's what I've learned from that. But I really wanted to immerse myself a little bit in the system. And then what I realized, cause I was there in the summer, their ingredients are so similar to ours. Like, you know, we have the nasturtiums. We have, you know, the summer brassicas. Um, they were getting a lot the exact same. And they're by the sea. The you know? berries. Yeah, the berries. Yeah. yeah, and the berries and the seafood. And I couldn't believe how similar our ingredients were. I'm really into seaweed and the seaweed, you know. And it's like, and it was just like so similar. I'm like, wow. Like, you know, when you were, every time, once in a while, I, I'll go stage in a friend's kitchen or go to a fine dining place. I'm like, hey, chef, you know, I'm going to just what's going on I always realize we're all doing the exact same thing buying from the exact same people foraging in the exact same places but then my ethos is how do I do it on a daily basis where people can do it in a neighborhood restaurant so I do that every day so that's you my you are absolutely uh, the embodiment of that ethic with porridge and puffs thanks it's, Matt it's a really it's so cool to see it in action that's my dream yeah cause you know cause I don't I just yeah, maybe one day I can do it because then I'll have a better, I'll have a bigger staff where my staff, my wonderful staff isn't dying, where we'll have more people and we can charge more money. We really undercharge people for food. I was going to say, yeah, but that's okay. I think that you want to open and be hospitable to as many people as possible yeah. and get the word out. But yeah, I mean, I, you I just know. don't want to do it at the expense of my team and, yeah. uh, and us because we all work so hard I mean, um, and that's kind of where we're at but it's fine that's my own issue I'll figure it out um, but that's the only thing that I would change but the ethos are exactly the same at any fine dining restaurant any of us our whole team yeah. consists of fine dining chefs I, I've i hired so cool. a little different yeah I've hired a little different um, I learned a lot of things in opening this restaurant still after all these years so I know I needed to do it a little different it's the one this is kind of like my, you know, like when the reason I'm opening a restaurant rather than working as an executive chef somewhere else is I get to touch everything. My food cost is outrageous. My labor cost is even more outrageous. But who cares? You know what? I sleep at the restaurant. Whatever. You know, like this is, I get to touch everything. Literally, there's a cot like 10 feet from <laughs> where we're recording this. Don't tell people that. Don't tell people Well, that. you, you <laughs> said it. You told everyone. And I'm saying this is not hyperbole. There's literally a cot that we're Don't sitting in. Don't tell me this is 
so embarrassing. But, but. it's important to, to state this is not an easy job. Um, but it seems to me that um, you can make it work when you put out a product that's really highly original and delicious, of course. I'm lucky. I have a community behind me. Um, I've been doing it for a really long time. There's no overnight success. And people are like, hey, it's a pop. I'm like, no, I've been doing this for 20 years, dudes. Like, you know, I've been working in other people's kitchens, slaving away. And I've worked really hard everywhere else. It's really hard work. And it's you, it's not overnight ever. And I think that's the one thing that if I, you know, people are like, how did you do it overnight? I'm like, and I just stop them in their tracks. I'm like, I didn't do it overnight, friends. I've been doing this for a really long time. And this project, even Porch and Puffs, is five years old. It's right. five years old. Right. You were at the farmer's market for much of that time. Yeah. 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 But it's only four months old here. It's four months old at the, at on this Beverly. Part, at the yeah. yeah, the brick and mortar. Yeah. And it's a beautiful space, too. It's like really like, you know, it's two levels. It's airy. There's beautiful like there's all these dried herbs on, and plants on the wall. It's the aesthetic is cool. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah it's simple. It's just like I just think it's it's about the food and it's about the warmth that the space brings. We didn't do much. My budget was a penny. Well, you, so we you, just, you have yeah. beautiful white walls and you put out good food. We ask all of our guests, I want to know um, if you have a dream cookbook project somewhere inside your brain, what would that be? A dream cookbook project? Um, you know what? I, ha- I don't. I really don't. It's really funny. Okay. I, f- I feel like if I wrote a cookbook, it would be a ways away. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, like, let's but... what what you you read cookbooks, you you buy cookbooks. I'd make you know what I would make a film before I wrote a book. Uh, I'm more of a film. Tell me more. I think you know, and it wouldn't even be a documentary. I I I think it would be, it'd be like a feature, a narrative feature. You know, like I don't know, because I just feel like f- food is it's just a different medium for me. It's not it's a it's creative and it's wonderful, but. I like to make things up, and I feel like cookbooks people want like to test it and define it. And I, I do everything on the whim, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm whimsical, and I want to make stuff up. And I feel like a cookbook would like just be literally bound, and like people would test it, and I'd be like, "Oh, it didn't work. I'm sorry." Well, you know what? Even like Coda Farms, so consistent. Our rice purveyor, right? Our rice that we use, so consistent. We use it every day, and every day the rice is something different. Every day. We t- I taste every single batch of porridge that comes out of our kitchen. And it's t- and not even for the seasoning, just for the rice and the texture. It does something different every day. Same exact time, same exact water. Mm. We think it's the same, same exact water, but it's different every time. Well, the wa- yeah, the water's You know, the water's different. The rice is different because how much moisture is in the air? How much, you know, what, what else are you cooking that day in that kitchen? Um, are you baking? It all changes. How, what are you storing it next to? Mm. Did, you know, did we forget to did we put it in the wrong place? It all changes. And I think that's... And so, I, yeah, so I, cookbooks are great. I love them, but I look at the pictures. So an animated feature yeah. featuring some rice. Yeah. And a rice having a mind of its own. Yes. Oh, like, my God. That would be my dream. Yeah. I heard you can make films in this town. So I hear. I, you know, I, I, I haven't made one, so I don't know. Minhan, <laughs> thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks, Matt and friends. Here's Matt speaking with Daniel Holtzman.
Dan Holzman is here, columnist for 100 Questions for my friend the chef. You are my friend the chef, and I have a question. Ooh, I'm excited. Why is Eshtabari the most important meat restaurant in the world? This is a really great question, although I don't know if Echabari is the, is the most important meat restaurant in the world. It's certainly one of the most important grill restaurants, period, end of story. Um, I learned about Echabari actually in Singapore. Echabari is in northern Spain, but I learned about it in Singapore where I was eating at a restaurant called Burnt Ends, and the chef had worked at Echabari, and he was touting it. And I, I looked it up, and I realized that I was a dilettante for not knowing about it. So what it. do you order at Eshtabari? Where is Eshtabari? How do you get there? You fly into Bilbao. You check out the um, the Bilbao uh, Guggenheim yeah. Museum, obviously. Frank Geary or something like that fancy. Uh, lots of um, sculpture. And then you drive about an hour into the countryside, and there's this unassuming farmhouse that is a three Michelin star grill, like Mecca, basically – there's a there's a a chef with two ovens. One of them, about a thousand degrees, burning hot. The other one um, is dormant and then switched overnight. They cook slow roast in the in the in the in the oven that's kind of like dormant overnight. And then they fire burn and 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 char in the hot oven. And then using shovels, they pull the coals out of the hot oven to fire these grills where they basically cook some of the most heavenly foodstuffs to ever grace my lips and you you get the tasting menu because you went all the way there and the whole time you're eating this tasting menu you're so jealous because there are these delicious t-bone steaks that are coming out to the tables all around you and you're like i screwed up i should have gotten the t-bone steak with the green salad what's on the tasting menu here's the deal the tasting menu is like all kinds of amazing stuff there was a almost raw chorizo that blew my mind it was just grilled from the outside there are percebos or percebes or there's a there's a there's a pronunciation for that and uh there it's a it's a progression of of dishes that changes seasonally and foraged etc but then just when you're kind of like really upset you didn't get the t-bone steak the last course of the tasting menu comes out and it's the t-bone steak with the grilled with this green salad and it's like heaven it's like having, imagine you got to have the fancy food of your dreams, and then at the end, you got to have a steak. Just at the end. At a the steak end. for dessert. Well, then there's probably dessert as well, but I don't remember because I was drinking. Great green wines from northern Spain, too. I, d- I, d- I drank some of that. Chocolate. Some of that ch- chocolate. Chocolate. I, chocolate. I did it. I did it. Dan Holzman, thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.